Welcome to the First Take, First Word Farmers weekly biopharma news podcast. My name's Simon King. I'm an executive editor at First Word Pharma Plus. I have with me today my colleagues Virginia Lee and Michael Flanagan. We're going to be um, cherry picking some of the the key news items from from the past seven days and looking at those in in a bit more detail. Um, I wanted to kick off today with uh, what was announced actually actually earlier on today. Um, the news that Novartis is selling the approximate thirty three percent stake that it owns in its fellow Swiss uh, pharmaceutical uh, rival, Roche, for $21 billion. Um, Just a bit of background uh, before we have a a discussion. This is a stake that was built up back in uh, between 2001 and 2003 by the then Novartis CEO, Daniel Vassella. He at one stage wanted to sort of merge the two companies together. Um, in a bid to rival uh, Pfizer's uh, leadership of the pharmaceutical market. And the stake was initially described as a financial investment with a strategic element. And over the next couple of years, those sort of discussions didn't really go anywhere. And essentially, because of the way that Roche is structured, Novartis couldn't really force uh, a merger as, as an issue at all. So it turned into this strategic investment, but one that clearly appears to have paid off because not only um, has that stake that that initially cost $5 billion been sold for $21 billion, but it's also paid out dividends of of around $6 billion over the past 20 years. Um, Obviously, you know, Michael and Virginia, the knock-on effect today is, is prompted this speculation as to what Novartis may well do with that money and obviously any proceeds that it also gets from the potential sale of its Sandals division, which it, it outlined as a as a possibility just a couple of weeks ago. Maybe they're, uh, you know, if they're in the market for, for bold non-acquisitions, they're probably going to be facing some competition from Pfizer. So maybe they're, maybe this is their way of, uh, you know, uh, securing their financial backing to, uh, go head to head with them on whatever sort of deals they're looking at. Yeah, I mean, previously, there's been kind of speculation that what Novartis is, you know, prior to this, they've they've kind of said, you know, which is a similar sort of approach to a lot of the big pharma companies at the moment, you know, they're looking at bolt on deals, anything, I guess, you know, below or up to $5 billion. But this move today has really prompted speculation that, you know, they could be in the market for a bigger deal. Um, and we've seen in the past that actually, you know, Novartis, it, it doesn't really need an invitation to do um, large scale M&A. We've seen the company build up its position in gene therapy. They, they've made quite a big play in the last few years in radio pharmaceuticals. And they obviously, they did that big acquisition of the medicines company a couple of years ago for about $10 billion, which is still one which is under a fair amount of scrutiny. Um, but yeah, as you, as you mentioned, I think we'll, we'll go on to this in a minute. Pfizer are, are definitely a potential rival um, in the M&A space. One thing that Novartis did do this week is they, they announced obviously a much smaller deal, but an important one nonetheless with a company called Dunad Therapeutics, which is a UK company. Um, Virginia, this was a deal for 
for protein degradation drugs. Um, I mean, this is something that a lot of big pharma companies seem to be getting into at the moment. Yeah, so this deal is really just the latest bet by a major pharma in protein degradation. We've seen at least 12 other big pharma and biotech deals in the area in the last few years. And pretty much every major company has invested in some kind of degradation program or platform, primarily through licensing deals. Um, and, and there's you know, reason for excitement, unlike small molecule inhibitors or MABs, degraders are designed to really block all the proteins functions and that provides more flexibility for drug developers to go after targets that have been traditionally considered undruggable it, because it no longer limits them to targeting a protein's active sites. So, you know, this is an area that's seen a lot of pharma interest. It's also seen significant investment in the startup space over the last few years. And it also got its first clinical validation a couple of years ago with our Venus's prostate cancer and breast cancer agents. So I think it'll be really interesting to see where the field goes uh, going forward. You know, the newcomers are really broadening the scope of protein degradation and looking at new mechanisms beyond what the early players were doing. Okay. So we mentioned uh, briefly a couple of minutes ago this idea of you know, and, and this could be an area where, where we see Novartis make bigger moves as well. But, you know, we, we talked about this potential push for M&A. And, um, Michael, you mentioned Pfizer being, a, a, you know, a potential rival bidder for, for interesting looking assets. I mean, obviously, this is, you know, partly based on the fact that the company is now um, sitting on, you know, huge um, revenues or, or huge cash piles, I guess, uh, from sales of its COVID-19 vaccine. Yes, they are swimming in it, I think, as the kids would say these days. Um, so they just reported their third quarter rev uh, earnings in, in which their um, commodity, the, the COVID-19 vaccine, um, posted 13 billion in sales just for you know that three-month period, which is... Um, which is a lot, uh, and is a lot more than the the street was expecting, which was 11.9 billion, and so obviously they raised their their full year guidance for the COVID-19 vaccine, and perhaps more interestingly, they raised uh, or they gave for the first time the guidance for 2022, and they said they expect 29 billion in sales next year, which. Uh, is a lot more than you know. Analysts were sort of suggesting. I think they had 22 billion was the number they were pegging for next year. So, you know, this just speaks to a couple of things. Number one, it speaks to perhaps a little bit longer durability of this, you know, uh, revenue stream, which obviously may not be great news for humanity, but is good news for Pfizer. Um, and also, it just sort of speaks to how much money. Uh, dry powder, if you will, Pfizer is going to have to go out and, and do deals, which, uh, you know, I was sort of speaking tongue, tongue in cheek when I said, you know, Novartis is, you know, adding to their war chest just to compete with Pfizer. But there's probably some truth to it. If Pfizer is out there with this much money, there's clearly and they have, you know, um, their appetite for deals is always pretty strong. So where do they put it? Who knows? But uh, yeah, they are sitting on quite a pile of money. It's only going to get bigger for the next year or more. Yeah, I mean, sales of the vaccine this year are now pegged at $36 billion. I mean, there's been some speculation from analysts, you know, every quarter when, the, when, when Pfizer 
announces their kind of latest projected uh, revenues for the year, that in actuality, 2020 run revenues are probably going to be higher than what Pfizer is saying, because you know there's going to there's going to possibly be more contracts that are signed and, and more deliveries that are that are kind of secured before before the end of 2021 but even 36 billion dollars i mean what that's that's nearly twice you know the sales that humira generates as as the industry's biggest selling product it's actually i mean i looked at the numbers quickly i think it's equivalent to being the eighth largest drug company in the world if we're looking at prescription pharma sales um from from 2020 so it, it's a it's a huge amount of money. Um, and I guess if, you know, I guess if we're looking at what else Pfizer did say or didn't say on its uh, third quarter results, you know, you could make an argument that there is not necessarily a huge amount of other exciting stuff going on in the pipeline. So that really just, I guess, speaks to the idea that, that they may um you know, they may look to supplement that with sort of business development stuff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think once you scratch the surface of their earnings, a lot of their base business products did not perform quite so well. You know, Prevnar, Vindamax, Eloquist, Ibrance, they all missed their, um, you know, revenue projections from, from the street. Chantix, the smoking cessation drug did too, although that was perhaps due to a one-time issue with the recall but you know there's there's clearly some questions once you get past the commodity there's some questions about its um you know sort of longer term based business and then also if you go into their pipeline updates from from the quarter you know there were there were a couple ones that probably raised eyebrows not really in a good way there were some delays for gene therapies um there was uh, what was the other thing oh tick two and so they they decided to spin off their their both their tick two targeted programs that are in mid stage development at this point. You know that's an interesting move right there. Obviously, we can have a whole different conversation about tick two and sort of the prospects for that target. Um, this sort of suggests that Pfizer may be cooling on it, um, which may be related to you know obviously the FDA's decision to come down hard on the entire Jack class. Um, and then also Bristol Myers recently reported some sort of disappointing phase two results in ulcerative colitis. So um, just that's an interesting um, side tangent we could go on with with tick two. But um, as far as Pfizer uh, goes, yeah, there's there's just some question marks once you get past the uh, the COVID nineteen vaccine, which of course will only spur further their appetite in uh, bringing on external innovation. Yeah, I guess what we should you know, pause to give um, Pfizer credit for um, is the fact that they've, you know, continued to sort of deliver on what, what they've said in terms of vaccine doses. And I guess, you know, if, if we look back at what's previously been said, you know, actually over deliver, I think, you know, in terms of the manufacturing capacity, you know, they've done a fantastic job on that front. And we've heard today that Moderna, who obviously a much smaller company, um, but, 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 you know, the only other company that, that market one of these messenger RNA COVID-19 vaccines, they've actually had to um, lower their guidance for the year because they've run into a few manufacturing issues. And, and I, I guess, you know, we, we've got to congratulate Pfizer and, and say they've done a, a fantastic job um, in terms of, the, the, you know, the, the, the scaling and the manufacturing of, of the vaccine and, and how they've delivered it. Um, 
one thing I, I just wanted to sort of finish on today, um, not really news, but in relation to some, to, to some research that we've done at First Word, uh, we, we've probably spoken quite a lot in the, in the last couple of weeks on this podcast about the US Alzheimer's disease market. Um, a lot of that was focused on Biogen's third quarter announcement a couple of weeks back where um, the very low uh, initial sales figures for Aduhelm, the Alzheimer's drug, were sort of scrutinized by us. They've been scrutinized by analysts. They've been sort of scrutinized by everyone over the previous 24 hours. And, you know, Biogen uh, management made a, made a really um, a big sort of play uh, that week about how much Medicare national coverage determination um, was the primary factor that was limiting um, uptake of Aduhelm. And interestingly, I, I thought on their Q3 earnings call, you know, really did also play down the fact that the, the list price um, is, a, is a barrier to adoption. And I, I think whilst we've got to recognise that, that obviously, um, you know, Medicare coverage and price are interconnected, you know, in some ways, um, you know, I wanted to just flag a, a survey that we run of a, ran of 100 US neurologists. We, we published it this week. Um, if you're a First Word Pharma Plus user, you know, um, please do have a look at it, uh, particularly if you've got an interest in the Alzheimer's market. And, you know, the feedback really does suggest that um, it's not the Medicare national coverage determination alone that is preventing use. And in fact, you know, based on, on the feedback that we got, it's the list price of Aduhelm um, in more cases is actually acting as the, as the primary factor um, for, for, for Aduhelm not being used. Um, you know, a few other, uh, you know, findings that I wanted to highlight, you know, 33% of respondents said they don't anticipate prescribing Aduhelm at all. Uh, I actually think, you know, based on some prior um, research that we've done that that might actually be a, a sort of a slightly positive development for Biogen because I'm I'm pretty sure that an earlier survey we ran nearer its approval back in June um there was a, there was a higher proportion of, of, of neurologists that we surveyed who said they didn't anticipate using it so I actually think as the um as the negative kind of media coverage perhaps subsides I, th I think there, there could well be an element of um of physicians sort of willing to use the drug um but i think what the survey really did illustrate is the fact that um you know there's a multitude of factors that are holding this this product back at the moment and i i certainly would not be confident that you know suddenly getting a positive medicare uh, determination is going to sort of mean that that aduhelm is used much much more frequently yeah, and, and Lily recently said they'll be running a head-to-head -head study against Aduhelm, and they're looking to launch in the second half of next year. So this all raises the question again of whether they'll really be able to take advantage of their first-in-class status before Lily and potentially Roche enter the market in the next couple of years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think we we discussed previously, you know, being reliant on on that NCD. Um, is going to move, you know, a potential uplift in Aduhelm sales so much closer to, particularly when Eli Lilly potentially reached the market. That is obviously, that's still a big if. Um, and, you know, one interesting thing that, that came out of the survey, actually, you know, we've got the, um, the, the CTAD meeting taking place next week and Biogen 
are expected to present some new data there. I think it's looking at um, reductions in plasma tau and uh, it's kind of evidence to show that that's a good, um, you know, uh, biomarker to, to indicate that Adahelm's effective at slowing um, neuro, neuronal cell death. Um, one of the things that the survey found, I, you know, 90% of neurologists said that that data could positively influence their future utilization. But the vast majority, about 50% overall, said that, you know, potential increases are likely to be only minimal as a result of those, uh, you know, of those data being presented. So, you know, really just kind of feeding into the idea that I think there's a there's a real complex set of interconnecting factors. And, and that includes, you know, the efficacy and the safety trade-off, which, you know, we've discussed numerous times. Um, so definitely, I think, going to prevent, uh, you know, prevent there being a quick fix um, for the current sort of situation that Aduhelm finds itself in. 